Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. In this episode, we are going to be sharing a story called Banishing a Ghost. And the story goes like this. The wife of a man became very sick. On her deathbed, she said to him, I love you so much, I don't want to leave you. And I don't want you to betray me. Promise that you will not see any other women once I die, or I will come back to haunt you. For several months after her death, the husband avoided other women, but eventually he ended up meeting somebody and falling in love. Eventually eventually they became engaged, and on the night that they were engaged to be married, the ghost of his former wife appeared to him. She blamed him for not keeping the promise, and every night thereafter she returned to haunt him. The ghost reminded him of everything that transpired between him and his fiancée that day, even to the point of repeating word-for-word their conversations. It upset him so much that he couldn't sleep at all. Desperate, he sought advice from a Zen master who lived near the village. This is a clever ghost, the master said, upon hearing the story. It is, the man replied. She remembers every detail of what I say and do. She knows everything. The master smiled. You should admire such a ghost, but I will tell you what to do next time you see it. Next time the ghost appears, reach for a handful of beans. And, if the ghost is able to tell you exactly how many beans are in your hand, then the ghost is real. But if the ghost is not able to tell you that, then that may show you that it's all in your head. That night, the ghost returned. The man responded just as the master had advised. You are such a wise ghost, the man said. You know that I can hide nothing from you. If you can answer me one question, I will break off the engagement and remain single for the rest of my life. Ask your question, the ghost replied. The man scooped a handful of beans from a large bag on the floor. Tell me exactly how many beans are in my hand. At that moment, the ghost disappeared and never returned. Okay, so... A lot of emotions happening here in reading this story, (laughs) especially the beginning where this man's wife on her deathbed basically threatens him and says, if you ever love another woman or see another woman, I will come back to haunt you. Like, what is this man supposed to say? (laughs) The audacity of this woman to say something so preposterous and on her deathbed, no less, in such a fragile moment between the two of them. I mean... That takes stage five clinger to a whole nother level. But anyway, the point is, this story is very interesting for a few reasons. Because it shows us that the very things that we think are haunting us when it comes to the experiences that we notice on the outside oftentimes are like a mirror to reflect that which is on the inside. Meaning that that which we feel haunts us is typically our own shame and guilt. The things that we hide from ourselves. Now, we've talked about this on this podcast multiple times of how there aren't any good or bad emotions. There are just emotions and how you interact with them makes them so. However, when you have an unpleasant or an uncomfortable emotion, that emotion is attempting to signal something to you. And if we hide those emotions, if we try to just disregard them or dismiss them and push them away then they stay with us and they begin to build and build and build. And the compounding effect of an emotion that's unaddressed or unprocessed becomes very significant. So in this story, part of what's being talked about here is this idea of the resistance of one's own emotions. Because what was haunting him was not actually his crazy wife who said that she'd come and haunt him if he ever loved again, but his own guilt around the situation. 
because he had made that promise to which he wouldn't be able to keep. And oftentimes, that's a place where our guilt can originate from. Sometimes if we say yes and we agree to things that we don't actually agree with or that we feel obligated to agree with in the moment, us not keeping them can have this sensation of the emotion coming back and haunting us. We start to notice things in our own environment that are happening and we start to associate it to maybe that guilt or that shame that we feel. Like, for example, you make a promise to a friend that you're not going to watch the new season of a show without them and then you watch it and then all of a sudden, you know, you slip on a banana peel in your kitchen or, you know, you're driving and some person in a beige Camry cuts you off and you're thinking to yourself, all these bad things are happening to me because... I broke that promise. And the, and the reality is the bad things are the things that we start to associate to our, our quote-unquote wrongdoings are not necessarily happening because of that. But as human beings, we are creatures of pattern recognition. We are always looking for the patterns and the consistency in the environment in order to attempt to control the environment out of a need for safety, out of a need for certainty. Because we do not like uncertainty as human beings. We like to know what the environment is and the reasons behind what it is that we do. So in this story with the ghost, his own guilt was haunting him. The guilt of making a promise to somebody he loved, although it was a rather bold request on her part, and breaking that promise. The moment that the Zen master gave him the suggestion to reach for a handful of beans, it was something that even on an unconscious level, he had no idea how many beans he had grabbed. And so what that was triggering was the failure of a belief system that was in place. This man believed that his late wife would come back to haunt him if he broke his promise and the power of our beliefs can be extreme sometimes so the nature of the human brain is designed to take in 120 bits of information per second but in the year 2021 when this is being recorded we're taking in several million bits of information per second so we're taking in significantly more information than we are able to actually process in a functional way so we're getting millions of bits of information per second with all the stimulus in our environment, yet we're only able to catch 120 per second. And consciously remember in the short term, 7 plus or minus 2, so 5 to 9 bits of information per second that we're actually able to consciously retain. So with that being said, the way that we can look at this is as if every bit of information was toothpicks being thrown at you, every was, is toothpicks that are being thrown at you all at once. Now, what's going to determine which toothpicks you actually catch? What's going to determine it are your beliefs, your values, your emotional biases. So the millions of toothpicks come our way. We reach out. We try to grab toothpicks. We're only able to see 120 and catch five to nine of them. That is similar to how our mind works when it comes to what we end up noticing in the environment. So if somebody has a belief, like in this story, that... Because he broke his promises that his late wife would come back to haunt him as a ghost, then he is going to notice in his environment and through his own actions only the bits of information that are congruent with that belief. That is what's going to determine what he filters out in terms of all the information that comes in. And this can also happen internally. So he starts to hallucinate this ghost. Now, I'm not saying that a belief can make you hallucinate necessarily, but obviously for the sake of the story, that is what's happening here. So what the Zen master does when he says to him, grab a handful of beans to which you do not know how many you have in your hand, and 
ask the ghost to tell you how many there are. And if the ghost doesn't know, then the ghost will disappear and you'll know that it's all in your head. And that's exactly what had happened. Basically, what the Zen master was triggering with that suggestion and what transpired was the failure of a belief system. Now, in our lives, when we have delusional values, when we have delusional beliefs, beliefs that put us into places of unnecessary and excessive suffering, sometimes the only thing that can break them is not something good coming into your life, but is the very failure of those values or belief systems that causes them to disappear. When we realize the futility in our own belief systems, that is often enough to cause them to disappear. Now, it is extremely difficult to experience the failure of your beliefs or values. These are things that you hold close to yourself. And a belief is nothing but a feeling of certainty about something. So when we have a belief fail on us, it is not a good experience. And typically, most people do not allow the belief to fail on them. And they do not allow it to fail on them via engaging in more delusional thinking. They try to confirm why the belief is so. And so they'll look for things in the environment. They'll look for patterns. They'll look for reasons that this belief is going to remain true. Because even if the belief doesn't serve us and is painful or is causing suffering or is causing your ex-spouse to come and haunt you as a ghost, the one thing that as humans we collectively do not like is uncertainty. So we'd rather hold on to the belief that is causing us anguish than actually be in the unknown because the unknown can be a scary place. And when our belief system or our values fail on us, what we end up experiencing is a sense of disorientation, that we thought life was one way, we rested our identity upon that, and it turns out that that belief became invalid. And that experience can be extremely scary especially because the way that we orient ourselves to the world are through our beliefs and our values. That's what we hold on to. In preparation for this episode, I was reading an article and by Ralph Lewis on Psychology Today. And one thing that he had mentioned in the article that I thought was really interesting is that we are, meaning seek we are a meaning-seeking species. We tend to process events in light of what they mean to us. We make a value judgment. Is it good or bad in the context of my life? And... It is a human habit to infer deliberate intention to events in self-referential ways. Ralph Lewis. So what's really interesting about this is that through our beliefs, through the meanings that we create based on the voids of understanding we have about the world around us or about ourselves or about other people, is that we will create a meaning, we'll assume a meaning for something, we'll assume a meaning for any void that we have in our life, and we'll believe it as though it is fact. We start to notice coincidences in the environment that are congruent with our belief. Like Ralph Lewis was saying in this article, we process events in light of what they mean to us, meaning we have a subjective processing that occurs based on the event that's happening. So man loses his wife. She threatens to be a ghost. If he ever loves again, he loves again. And he makes a promise that he definitely can't keep. He ends up loving again. And then he processes this event through that guilt that he felt in that moment. In the story, manifests itself as a ghost, then he has to deal with it. The failure of the belief system, which is the realization of the futility of our values or our beliefs, is when he grabs the handful of beans, which he clearly does not know himself how many there are, and realizes that his experience of this ghost was all in his head. And oftentimes, we'll have a breakthrough that occurs because our delusional thinking fails on us. And that's one of the reasons why when I introduced 
the Zen Stoic intentions and delusions. One thing that I talked about is that you can pursue enlightenment through intentionality or eventually it might be reached by delusion because a person who pursues in their folly eventually becomes wise. So through delusional thinking and delusional intent, eventually those delusions will fail on you so many times that they reveal the futility where you kind of throw your hands up in the air, giving up on these old belief systems, and suddenly you're liberated from the shackles of those belief systems and value sets that held you down. The thing is, that which haunts you most sometimes holds the greatest gift. That is the things that we feel most shameful of, the things that we hold inside. And we're taught to demonize our guilt and shame and bury it at all costs. But that is not the way that we solve this. I was reading another article from Mark Manson called The Best Way to Resolve Your Shame. And one thing that he had said in there is that our guilt festers and turns into shame. It becomes something horrifying and gross that must be concealed and defended from anyone who would otherwise expose it. And it's in the hiding that ultimately hurts us. Because what this hiding looks like in real life is a deflection of responsibility. It looks like passive aggression. It looks like manipulation and unwillingness to trust. It corrodes and poisons our relationships and destroys our ambitions. And as any addict will tell you, overwhelming amounts of shame can slowly murder us from the inside out. So in the self-help world, this idea of guilt and or shame is looked at with disdain. It's looked at in a way that needs to be eradicated at all costs. And and in essence, it attempts to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The emotions of guilt and shame have their functions, but if we always hide them, if we always cast them in the shadows, then we start to adjust our self-referential narrative based on the guilt and shame that we have. And thus, the things that remind us of our guilt and shame begin to haunt us. In our everyday life, we start to become uneasy anytime we look at something that is remotely associated or resembling that which we feel guilty and shameful about. And sometimes the only way out is to confront that guilt and shame, to bring light to it, to, to shine light on that which you've cast in the shadows of your mind so that you're able to illuminate it, observe it, reflect upon it, and understand it rather than try to hide it away to which it's always going to be continuously coming up in your life. So in the same article, Mark Manson also went on to say, you hopefully don't go around sleeping with your friend's partners and shitting in the supermarket aisles because you fear social punishment. And that is a healthy fear. That threat of feeling ashamed keeps you, your genitals, and your bowels in check. While shame functions to keep you from doing stupid, awful things, guilt similarly motivates us to right our wrongs. When we feel guilty about something, we often set out to make it right. We apologize, and in some cases, we offer to fix it. This feels bad, but it is also healthy. Expressing guilt for our transgressions and setting a course of corrective action shows others that, one, we know the rules and we know we broke them, and two, we care about others in the group enough to try to fix things. In short, shame and guilt solve a big problem inherent to living in larger social groups. They help regulate the behavior of the entire group at the level of the individual, Mark Manson. So this is really key because we don't feel these feelings because we are bad people or we be, or because we deserve to suffer. We feel these feelings because they have a function, they have a message for us, they have a signal. If we're feeling a sense of guilt, it is an opportunity for us to right a wrong, even if that guilt is with ourselves. If we feel a sense of shit, the healthy function of that shame is that it keeps us socially intelligent and empathetic to the people around us. It allows us to be more considerate 
of what is and isn't acceptable in a public setting or with people that you are spending time around. So these emotions have healthy functions provided that we do not demonize them and we don't try to cast them away as soon as possible. Instead, what we can do is we can look at those feelings and use them as a way of liberating ourselves because sometimes confronting those experiences and those emotions can be the most liberating thing that we can do for ourselves. If you listen to the episode of this podcast, The Origin Story of Zen Stoicism, and if you haven't, I will put the link in the show notes. But if you've listened to that episode, that is the first time I publicly confronted, expressed, and reflected upon my shame. The shame and the guilt that I had within me. Now, why this was important for me is because I had received an inheritance from my mother, who had passed away when I was a kid. And with the best of intentions to be smart with this money, to multiply it and to do these really great things that made me seem clever to other people and to try to control my destiny and control other people's perception of me, I ended up burning through most of it. And for a long time, I felt a ton of shame around this. I felt inadequate. I felt stupid. I, I would play this narrative in my head where I'd compare myself to others by saying, if this person had gotten it, they wouldn't have been stupid. They would have made so much money, blah, blah, blah. And I was so shameful of this. I felt so stupid. I felt like this, this massive weight of regret because of this experience. And then one day I realized that that emotion, that feeling, that thought, and that sentiment had been running in my head repeatedly for years and I finally stopped for a moment and I said to myself if this has been going on for years and it's recurring then it must be trying to tell me something there's something that I haven't learned from this and in that moment I asked myself what did I learn from this experience what was this experience trying to teach me and as I asked that question and reflected upon myself instead of demonizing the feeling and trying to get away from it like I had been doing for years I stopped and I reflected as soon as I did that, what emerged from that question, from those emotions, were the four intentions and the four delusions of Zen Stoicism. That's how they came to be. They are inspired from fundamental teachings of both Zen Buddhism and Stoicism. But the way that they came to be was that I realized in that experience, I had been pursuing most things in my life and making most decisions out of those four delusions. And the feelings of guilt and shame that I had relative to how I handled my inheritance were the very emotions that when I processed them yielded to me the teachings of Zen Stoicism, the core of what this philosophy is and how it was able to help me, how it was able to help liberate me. And once I came to terms with that, that recurring emotion and thought pattern of feeling shameful or stupid or inadequate completely vanished. And it vanished because I confronted the emotions. I did not allow them to keep running rampant and be their slave, but instead I confronted them and I reflected upon them. And because that happened, I was able to bring this podcast and this philosophy to reality. Before that, there was no chance I was able to do that because I had been holding on to it and I'd been living through the filter of my own guilt and shame. So it is incredibly liberating to be able to do this. Sometimes it'll happen like it did for the man in the story where your values or your belief systems will just fail on you and it'll be so obvious that you can't help but see the world completely differently without being able to go back to your old belief system. So think about this for yourself. 
What would it look like for you if instead of trying to hide your shame and guilt, you were able to embrace it, you were able to express it with vulnerability and sincerity, and ask yourself what those emotions were trying to teach you, what lessons they were trying to bring to the surface for you. Keep in mind, an exercise like this is not for the faint of heart. These feelings can be very heavy at times and hard to come to terms with because they're the very thing that makes us feel like our own identity is compromised, like we're not enough. And it can feel scary and uncertain. It can feel less than, and sometimes it can even make us feel unworthy of love. But the very thing that will set you free is to confront those feelings, to bring light to the shadows of your mind where they exist. One of the best investments that we can make in ourselves is bringing light to that which we've cast in the shadows. Those who are able to experience the most inner peace are those who are able to confront their shame and guilt and welcome all of themselves, even the parts they don't like. This last point is incredibly important because part of having a sense of unshakable inner peace, part of resolving your own shame and guilt is welcoming all of yourself, including the parts that you don't like. This is where liberation begins. It begins with this acceptance. It begins with this reflection. And at times, you'll have the good fortune of your belief system or value set failing you. It doesn't feel very good, but a good fortune nonetheless, because when unpleasant experiences occur in our lives, they often reveal to us our greatest gifts. <laughs>